Today's reading is from Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, uh, we know that it is not natural to approach you as children. And Father, we need your Holy Spirit to help us see the reality of our sonship in you. And I ask, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, fill us uh, this morning, that we might uh, know uh, what it is to be your children, your sons, that we might enjoy and experience that. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. I I think there's like some sort of uh, minute allotment that Brett needs to fulfill on the mic each Sunday. And if he hasn't got that, then he just sort of works it a little bit longer and longer. I thought that was funny. <laughs> uh, we're continuing in Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7 this morning. If you haven't met me, my name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. I'm typically funnier than that, apparently. Uh, I had the opportunity this past week to talk to a group of church planners, which is strange because I haven't planted a church. Uh, but they asked me to, so I came to talk to some church planners. I talked about the gospel and what the gospel is and how the gospel, the good news of the historical events of Jesus, motivates us in our ministry, sustains us in our ministry, informs our ministry. And I suggested to these church planners, all with way more experience than me, uh, that, that we all live according to a story. That we're all living in light of a story. And we've talked about this before here at Christ City. But to support this point... I quoted a guy named Alistair McIntyre, who once said, I can only answer the question of what I am to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part. Uh, Explicitly or implicitly, knowingly or or unknowingly, we all live according to a story, uh, to an overarching grand narrative that controls and informs and motivates and sustains our lives. In 1988, one of these grand controlling narratives was proposed by Stephen Hawking in his immensely popular A Brief History of Time from the Big Bang to the Black Holes. Now, I haven't read A Brief History of Time, but I have read about it on Wikipedia, and here's what it's about, apparently. In it, in this book, Hawking writes in non-technical terms about the structure, origin, development, and eventual fate of the universe. Now, if that sounds bold and grandiose to you, uh, it should. Stories that propose to make sense of everything are by nature bold. Uh, It's no wonder a brief history of time has been translated into uh, 35 different languages and sold millions and millions of copies. We all want to know what story we're a part of. Because as McIntyre said, it is only then, only when we know what story that we're a part of, that we can answer the question, what am I to do? How am I to live? See, whether you're you're a follower of Jesus or not this morning, you're living your life according to a script. 
Even your non-script or your, your anarchist script is a script. You just being your most authentic self is a script, is a story. Now the question is, are we even aware of the stories that we're living in? Now Hawking is selling a story with a particular view of the origins and the ends of the universe. And Marie Kondo on her Netflix show is selling you a story of what it means to spark joy. She's selling you a story. What story are you living in? Now, it took Hawking 256 pages to tell his brief history of time. Uh, Here in our text this morning, Paul is going to give us a brief history of time, not in 256 pages, which you're all very thankful for, uh, but in seven verses. In seven verses, Paul gives us a brief history of time, if you will. Seven verses that actually can be summarized in three words. Three words I want to use to guide our time this morning. Here they are. Ready? Under, in, and out. Seven verses summarized in three words. Under, in, and out. And so if you have your Bibles, look with me. We're in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 1 to 3. It will come up on the screen behind me. But let's read that together. And Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what's great about our text this week, and I know you've all really, really appreciated this and haven't minded this at all. Uh, Paul is just saying the same thing this week uh, as he said last week. He's just taking another run at the same topic, the same point, uh, this week uh, from a different angle. He wants us to see it differently. Last week, Paul used the image, if you remember, of of a tutor to describe the law. Not like a nice sort of friendly tutor, like, hey, let let me teach you about this, friend. Like a harsh tutor. He says Israel was under this harsh tutor, this temporary time-set tutor, until it reached a full adulthood, until it came of age. The law was like this. In the same way, Paul says, the law is like guardians and, and managers. The image he uses is of an heir under these guardian and managers until the day that the heir receives their inheritance from the father. Now, the scenario Paul has in mind here in his, his first century context is that of a, of a child uh, whose, whose father has passed away, who has died. And before their dad died, uh, he wrote a will. And in that will, he would have appointed a date where the son would have inherited all the money, all the land, all the goats, all the sheep, uh, all that stuff on this date. But until that date happens, the son would be under guardians and managers, uh, people who oversaw the property, uh, people who oversaw the son's uh, development. And that experience, Paul says, is really, when you think about it, is no different than slavery. Because yes, you've got something coming, but in that moment, you have nothing. Nothing is yours. You're under these, these guardians, these managers. Now, if you've been paying attention in our series so far, you'll notice that there's this constant refrain throughout Galatians, beginning in Galatians 3, verse 10, of us being under something. Under something. Paul uses this time and time again. Last week in verse 23, we read this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive, what? Under the law. 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And we just read that an heir, this heir in this scenario here, is, is functionally no different than a slave because why? He is what? Under, under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, this isn't just, as I said, a last week and this week thing. The reader of Galatians will see that between Galatians 3 and 5, Paul uses some variation of under the law, under sin, under the curse, nine times between these two chapters. He wants us to see something. Nine times. We are, we're under sin. We're under the curse. We're under the law. Now in verse 3, Paul's taking another run at what it looks like to live under the law. And in verse 3, he says this. He draws this conclusion from his analogy. In the same way, just like that heir, we also, when we were children, were what? We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Just as the experience of an heir is no different than slavery before the date set by his father, before we were found in Jesus, Paul says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And now what does that mean? That's strange. Elementary principles? If you can with me, I want to look back at Galatians 3.28. In Galatians 3.28, Brett read this last week and you saw this last week. We, we saw this text that showed that we were all one in Christ Jesus. And what did Paul write last week? He said... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For what? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Paul's world, questions of what country you came from, uh, what socioeconomic status you had, what ethnicity you possessed, uh, whether you're male or female, these were all ways of deciding if that person is valuable or not valuable, or where on the scale of valuable they fit. And thank goodness we've moved past that, right? We're so progressive and so modern. We've moved past these things. The point last week, which, spoiler alert, is also the point this week, is that it is not your maleness or your femaleness, your ethnicity, your money, your lack of money. It's none of these things. It's none of these things that make you right with God. None of these things save you. It's faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. And when you put your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, you are one with him. And together, the body of Christ, we are one. We're one. See, the elementary principle of this world that enslaves us is that we need to save ourselves on the basis of something other than Jesus. That's the baseline way we operate, isn't it? We need to justify our existence on the basis of something other than Jesus. The elementary principles, plural, refer to these systems of salvation we put in place outside of trust and faith in Jesus. See, for the Greek pagan who would have been reading this letter, that would have meant trying to appease fickle and greedy little minor deities, right? You've got a bad crop. Do a quick sacrifice, right? Things are going well in your marriage. Do, do a quick sacrifice. See, for the false teacher who are, who are teaching, you know, law plus Jesus equals right standing with God, this would have meant that, that my ability to be right with God was on the basis of my uh, keeping the law. 
See, if we've been paying attention during the series, there's this really obvious objection that we could make. It's really obvious. Jake and, and Brett, you've talked about, you know, the law and how the law can't save you. But guess what? I'm not even religious. Like, I don't care about the law. Like, I, I, I don't care about really these, you know, these formalized terms of morality. This doesn't apply to me. I, I'm not trying to make myself right with God. What, what an antiquated, uh, uh, old idea. That's why I love Paul's break from the law language in our passage today. You see, you might not be trying to good works your way to God, but again, you are doing something to justify your existence. There's a reason you are sitting here today. There's a reason you got out of bed in the morning. And maybe it's to make more money, and maybe it's because you love your family, but there is something that justifies your existence. Something gets you out of bed in the morning. You have some vision of the good life, of this utopian future. And Paul says, Jew and Greek alike, whatever that thing is, whatever that thing is, is part of an earthly, elementary, basic way of thinking of things. And the result? Enslavement. Or as we saw last week, uh, imprisonment. Or as we saw the week before, or a few weeks before that, life under the curse. Uh, One author writes, We are all, all in a sense under the law. Even if we have never heard of the Bible or Moses. Why? Because we are all desperately trying to live up to some standards. We are anxious and burdened. Our relationship with the divine is remote or non-existent. And so what story are you living in? And Paul tells us in his brief history of time in these three verses that all of our stories, religious or irreligious, begin with us under the law. Now, as Paul has done in Galatians so far, we come to this but in our text. Look at verse 4 with me. This, this timeline-altering, life-changing but where God sort of just comes and he just changes everything. Look at Galatians 4, 4 to 5 with me. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the anticipation of verse 2, under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, that anticipation comes to fruition and is met in verse 4. What does verse 4 say? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And Paul tells us at, at exactly the right moment in human history, at exactly the right moment in human history, God sent his always existing never created son into our world. And he came, Paul says, on a mission to bring us out from under slavery uh, to the law and elementary principles of this world by joining us to himself in his death and resurrection. So that now we are in him. See, because Jesus was born under the law, his perfect law-keeping record is counted to us. And we've seen that. He does what we cannot do. But not only does Jesus do what we cannot do in satisfying the law and its demands, 
on the cross, Jesus pays for what we already have done and what we will continue to do. Jesus, Paul writes, born of woman to take the punishment of sin, owed to those born of woman. Were you born of woman? Then Jesus died for you. It was only a few weeks ago we saw that how Jesus became a curse for us on the cross is in order for uh, us to be brought out from under the law. But the emphasis, if you'll notice, on our text this morning, where Paul ends in verse 5, is, is something different than what we've seen so far. See, verse 5 says, not only did Jesus die to save us from our sins, he also died and rose again that we might be God's sons. One commentator said this, Christ's coming had adoption purpose as well as atoning purpose. And it's both of those things. Now remind me, Christ City, and I know this is you know, the, the early gathering, but remind me, what is the word that Paul uses to describe us under the law? Cursed? Slaves. 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 That's the word that Paul uses to describe us under the law. I know this is uncomfortable for us. We're not a response people, but let me ask you again. And what does he say God calls us now that we are in Christ? In our text today, what does he say we're called? Sons. Could there be a more dramatic turn of events in Paul's day and in our day from someone who is hopelessly enslaved in the morning and is a son by night? Like, those are opposites. One commentator, he said this, it's like waking up in the morning and you're on death row. And, and by dinner time, you're at the White House and you're enjoying a meal in your honor. And you're getting a medal and you're being celebrated. That's the movement that Paul is talking about here. It's not small. It's not insignificant. It's massive. Not only did Jesus take the curse we deserve, he gives us the blessing he deserves. Now, here's where it comes to, to push, and, and, and I, I struggle a bit. I, I am really quick to believe, and I don't know what this says about me, I, I'm really quick to believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I, I can do that math fairly quickly. I'm a sinner. Jesus came, died on the cross for my sins. But I am slow and even at times resistant to believe that God calls me his son in Christ Jesus. That's a bit of a different thing. Why is that? I'm reminded of the story I heard of this woman who had been experiencing some breakthrough in her realization that in Christ she had been adopted. In the midst of this breakthrough, this story says, uh, she recalled an incident in her youth when, when her older sister was hanging up her father's shirts on the clothesline outside. And she loved her daddy, and she wanted her daddy to know that, and so she grabs one of his shirts, but she can't reach the clothesline. And so she sees a, a rusty wheelbarrow, and it's in the sun. Oh, this shirt will dry there. She, she goes and takes this shirt and, and hangs it up on the rusty wheelbarrow, and she's proud. She's helping out her dad. She loves her dad. Her father came home later that day. He saw the shirt pinned on the wheelbarrow. He saw how it had been ruined by rust. And he was angry. And in his anger, he disciplined his daughter. 
And many years later, as the woman told this story to a counselor, she said, I now see that God the Father wouldn't do what my earthly father did. Instead, he would, you know, forget about the shirt and hug me. But the counselor responded, you still don't fully understand. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it on, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. Do we understand our sonship fully? You've read the story of the prodigal son before. I know you have. You're good church people, right? You've read the story of the prodigal son before. In Luke 15, we read the story of a son who basically gives the middle finger to his dad. He takes his inheritance early. He wastes it. He gets in trouble. And he finally comes to his senses. And what happens next in that story? Does he call his dad? And his dad you know, agrees to meet him at some neutral location. And he comes out of his car and you know, stern. And he you know, shakes his hand. I forgive you, son. And figure it out from here. Like, like is that the story of the prodigal son? That's not the one we find in Luke 15. What do we find in Luke 15? But while he, this is the son, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In a matter of moments, the prodigal son goes from being under the reality, the harsh reality of life under sin, to now being at his father's table. And not just there, again, I want us to see this as like a pardoned person. Now he's neutral. No, he's wearing the best robes. He's eating the best meat. He's drinking the best wine. They're celebrating him. And Paul tells us that the reception the prodigal received is the reception that you and I have received in Jesus. See, once we were under... But in the fullness of time, we were brought in. And now, it is from our positions as sons that we live out. Look at Galatians 4, 6-7 with me. And Paul writes, And because you are sons, because you are sons, because this is true of you, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And Paul is asking the Galatian church, if it's not circumcision that acts as evidence that you are sons of the father, true children of Abraham, what does? In Christ's city, I'm asking us this morning, if it's not religious duty, that acts as evidence that you are sons of the Father, what does? What does? How can you and I know, how can we experience the reality of our sonship? See, God not only sent forth His Son, but in the same way, He also did what? 
He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, this might make some of the more emotionally unhealthy amongst us uncomfortable, of which I put myself in that camp. This might make some more of the the rationally minded among us uncomfortable. But, But Paul's making an argument from experience. He's saying, Galatian church, you've experienced this. You've felt this. The term Abba, as some of you might know, is is Aramaic baby talk. It's daddy. It's papa. It invokes intimacy. It's this passionate cry. Dare I say, it's like ugly crying. Have you ever seen someone who's like, (laughs) it's like, oh, this is uncomfortable for me right now, right? And you're wondering to yourself, how is he a pastor? This is what we're talking about. It's just this uncomfortable, ugly crime. And it's a term we actually get from Mark 14, when Jesus, on the evening before he is crucified, before Jesus is crucified, what does he say in Mark 14? And he said, Abba, Papa, Father, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Paul's use of, of Abba, of Papa, of Daddy here in Galatians 4, it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. What Paul is saying is, is remarkable. Now that you are in Jesus, you can cry out to the Father with all the intimacy, love, and faith that Jesus cried out to the Father. And when you cry out, because you should, And when you cry out, you can be sure that the Father hears you and loves you just as sure as he hears and loves his son, Jesus. What does your prayer life look like? In my house, we have have two types of prayers. The first type of prayer, and maybe you can relate, is the... I am done parenting these children. It is time for you to go to bed and I feel obligated to pray with you prayer. Right? It's a real quick one. In the same vein of that type of prayer, we also have, and this is another one that we've perfected, uh, we should probably pray for this thing. Let's pray for it quick during the commercial break of the basketball game prayer. Right? Cold, formal, mechanistic. Now don't mishear me. Prayer is a discipline. Right? If we do what we do naturally, that's, that's not going to lead us down the right path. Prayer is a discipline. I've often found, actually, that as I've begun praying, one of these cold, mechanistic prayers I just described to you, that occasionally, and only occasionally, they give way to real, heartfelt, passionate, free, childlike prayer. Have you ever prayed like that before? When praying like a servant or a slave gives way to praying like a son. And we can think of it this way. When a head of state travels, what happens? They come to a different country, a prime minister, president, whatever. They come to a different country and they're met with what? Formality and pomp, right? Here's a speech. Here are some trumpets. You know, grand speeches are given, it's cold, it's mechanistic, it's formality. But when that head of state returns home, and and they walk in the door, and they drop off their luggage, 
What happens? What happens? Their kids, do they line up in the hallway and they play trumpet for their father and do like a choreographed dance for him and, and welcome home, father, and here's a speech I prepared for you? Like, I don't know if your kids do that. And if they do, I want to talk later. That's amazing. It's some Sound of Music stuff. My kids don't do that. What do they do? They jump on me. And they kiss me and they hug me. And after they kiss me, they tell me they ate a worm. And, and they tell me about their day. And, and there's none of that. They're not trying to impress me. They just want to be with me. And they love talking with me. What does your prayer life look like? Again, the emotionally unhealthy amongst us, like I count myself in that group. I want the latter, but often I find myself in that cold, mechanistic place. Now I get there are some of us this morning who are already forming objections in their mind. God is the God of the universe. He is to be feared, and we are to approach him with reverence. And I fully hear you. And I fully agree with you. Up until a point. You see, reverence for God in all his eternal power and glory is not meant to produce hesitancy and formality in our prayer life. It is intended to produce frequency, worship, awe, and wonder in our prayer life. A big view of God should inspire us to come to him more often. Not less. Like a big view of God should inspire worship that we can actually call out, Abba, Papa, Father. A big view of God should inspire awe and wonder that he lets us jump on him and kiss him and ask him things and talk with him. Just as if we were his children, just as if we were his son, Jesus. Friends, let me invite you this week to cry out to him in prayer, not as slaves, not even as servants, but as sons. Now, as sons, not only do we cry out in prayer, we live out our identity as sons in all we do. Look at verse 7 with me one more time. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know that person who walks around with a swagger and there's like finger guns, kind of like the fawns or something, you know, like, 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 they, they, like they, they walk around and, and they think they're a big deal. Like what's the sort of the negative idiom we use for that person? <sighs> that guy, that girl, they look like they own the place, right? <sighs> I was talking to Brett about this this week. He said uh, he called this the frat boy swagger. Uh, right, right? That person looks like they own the place. They own the place. Now, in the best possible way, our text this morning is telling us Christian, Christian in Christ, child of God, guess what? You own the place. You've got everything you need. Not only does the spirit we receive in our adoption allow us to cry out in prayer in confidence, he, the spirit of the son, reminds us, empowers us, allows us to live out our lives as sons in confidence. Now, what does that look like? 
How do we practically live out this brief history of time? I don't know what it would have looked like for somebody reading the Stephen Hawking book, but this is what it looks like to read the Bible and live that out. Ready? Galatians 4, 1 to 7, how do we live this out? Let me just suggest a few things. We've already talked about our prayer life, but I think it's worth asking again. Do you pray like a slave with little faith that your father hears you and cares about you? Or do you pray with the confidence of a son? Are you anxious? Are you unsure if the father will meet you in your weakness? Or do you live in the confidence of his loving care? Are you defensive? Oh, so defensive. It is a slave mentality that tells us that we need to constantly justify our existence and worth before God. But it is the mentality of a son, a son who is always standing in Christ's perfection, always standing in Christ's perfection, that allows us to receive criticism and rebuke and correction without being destroyed. Because we stand in Christ's perfection. Do you feel powerless to defeat sin in your life? You don't think you can do it. And you've tried, but you don't think you can do it. A slave is helpless to sin. A slave can't defeat sin. A slave is mastered by, by sin. But Paul says in Romans 6.11, Children of God, Consider yourself dead to sin's power, but living for God in the power Christ Jesus gives you. Only children of God have that power. Are you greedy? Do you hoard your money? Do you hoard your stuff? Your time? This is the mind of a slave to the elementary principle of the one with the most stuff wins. But you are not enslaved to the elementary principles any longer, are you, children? You are a son, and the son of the father will inherit all things. All things. They will rule and reign with Jesus. And you can walk around like you own the place. Because in Christ Jesus, you do. We are no longer under the need to save ourselves. Hear that this morning, Christ City. Instead, if we put our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, we find ourselves with every blessing in, in Jesus. And that includes our adoption. We're not just atonement people, we're also adoption people. And so that now we are able to not only cry out as beloved children, beloved sons, but we live out a humble confidence that there is nothing this world has to offer us that we haven't already received in our adoption into God's family. What can the world give you that you have not already received in Christ? Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.